Okay. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. We are honored tonight to have with us one of the legends of the independent film business, writer-director Alan Rudolph, who is also the son of director Oscar Rudolph, making them one of the few father and son directors in film history. Welcome, Alan. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, if it was Saturday night, I'd be slurring. <laughs> well, uh, Saturday nights always have a special meaning for me. And as a lot of the listeners know, one of the seminal TV series of my life was NBC's Saturday Night at the Movies, starting in 1962, where I started to catch up on all the movies I'd missed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I decided that Saturday Night at the Movies sounds like the, a great name for my podcast. Um as I told as I told you a little bit in the beginning before we got on the recording, I'm a big fan of a movie I saw when I went to the Stadium Theater on Pico Boulevard in 19 late 1950s. They were showing Kitty Matinees, and one day they showed a movie called Rocket Man uh, with that great little actor George Foghorn Winslow. Right. All these years later, I still remember uh, that movie. And when I discovered that that was your dad as the director, I said, oh, I, I got to talk to Alan about this and, and this movie and, and his dad and blah, blah, blah. So t tell me a little bit about, um, well, first of all, uh, you probably have some early memories of your dad being a director. Well, yes, it uh, was our kitchen table life. Yeah, my father, who was a great, I loved him dearly, uh, he was in many ways the history of the movie business, um, or at least he traveled along that path. Uh, he was born in Cleveland in 1911, and his mother, who was a fierce socialist and Eugene V. Debs campaign manager for Cleveland, uh, somehow decided the family at a very young age for my dad, we should move to uh, Los Angeles where there's this new industry starting. So she uh, brought uh, my grandfather and uh, my father and, and my father's brother uh, to Los Angeles and started taking him around as a kid to get him jobs in this new acting profession, silent movies. And he landed uh, like one of his first jobs, uh, uh, co-starring as a hoodlum, a kid, a delinquent, in a Mary Pickford movie, Little Annie Rooney, I believe it was called. And from there he became an actor and and times were tough, and he became an assistant director, uh, uh, an extra first uh, during um, the Depression. Some very funny stories he told. And then he got a break um, during one movie that Cecil B. DeMille was directing, a silent movie, where, uh, just to give you a brief story, 
uh, they were all playing uh, Saracens in some biblical F uh, movie. And so what, uh, you know, you'd stand on a sound stage while they lit in costume. So all the extras would put their flasks in the arrow quiver of the guy standing in front of them. And then while you're waiting, you just remove your flask and take a nip and keep waiting. And so by the time the shot came, most of the extras were drunk. And the mill <laughs> couldn't get uh, somebody to jump, a uh, stuntman, I guess, to jump from one phony rock to the next. So he took his megaphone and said, isn't there anybody out there who can make the?" And my dad raised his hand and he comes up. And he says, well, let's do it. And so he, he did it. And DeMille said, what's your name? And he says, Oscar Rudolph. And he says, I'm going to call you Gus. And he made him his assistant director. And he was an assistant director on DeMille movies. And then he uh, sort of bounced around. And this was uh, this was 1935. I believe the movie was called The Crusades. Well, aren't you wonderful? Thank you for that. Um, I... I... I actually, I, I wish I could take full responsibility, Alan, but I have IMDb at my back here, so I looked it up. So he be he became an assistant director for Cecil B. DeMille. Oh my God! Yeah, and I don't think it was immediate, but he wound up uh, on on several films. Uh, Might have been as a second. It was before the uh, Directors Guild. Actually, Dad was one of the early proponents of a Directors because Robert Aldrich, I think, was his assistant director when he became a first, my dad. And uh, Aldrich was the prime mover of the Directors Guild. Anyway, um, most of my early exposure to his profession was when he was an assistant director at Paramount. And he did uh, all the Hope and Crosby movies and, you know, uh, Martin and Lewis when I got a little older, but he was also, I think, one of their top assistants. And he, I, I think he was the AD on uh, Billy Wilder's first directing um, and a few others. So uh, the names popped up at dinner, but it was never, uh, we were a very closely knit family and uh, there was no outside world. I mean, I, I have never, I have a, uh, a negotiable relationship with reality. I, I mean, I was never taught reality. I, I'd go to visit my father on sets, on sound stages when I was about five or six, and I, I just I, I fell in love with the whole process. I, I loved those cold, uh, quiet places with some bright light shining in a distant corner. I knew it was for me because the walls were padded. And I'd, I'd, I'd walk up to where all the activity is and there's lights and everybody's moving, but not yelling. And, and you see the camera and it's focused on, you know, an insert of a, of a candle or something, <laughs> but you, this uh, whole, you... like excuse, all excuse reality me. just sort of focused on this one thing. And I just thought it was fantastic. Do, do, you, uh, remember, was, do you remember yeah. any of your celebrity encounters? Do any stick out in your mind? Well, I didn't have much of a mind then. I was, uh, you know, a kid. But I do remember uh, it might have been uh, uh, the memory was provoked probably because th uh, there were several photos on the wall in our house where I grew up. But sitting on uh, Crosby's lap and uh, uh, Bob Hope's lap. and uh, uh, But it, it, it was a 
sense of fantasy, but also it was, you know, that's where my dad worked. So it was going to the, some kids go to the grocery store to help their father out. I would go and watch out in the movie sets. Not often, but enough for it to be a big thrill. And uh, he took us to art, what would be considered at the time foreign movies when, you know, before I was even 10. So we had a, a pretty good exposure to the world cinema, as it were. But, but of course, I like the English language ones. And I I've completely fell in love with the Ealing Studio Pictures, which he took us to a lot, you know, the Alec Guinness movies and whatnot. Anyway, uh, he got his first break for this newfangled thing, television, to move up from an assistant director to uh, a director in about 1950. And we moved to New York for uh, several months. And that was the, the life-changing experience for me. I was about seven or eight. And I, I couldn't believe there were tall buildings that you saw from your window that you were also in a tall building. And he directed um, a series with Barry Nelson. I think it's called The Hunter. And yeah, I'm, looking at it, I'm looking at it right here, a spy series where character Bart Adams is a master of disguise. He uses the cover of being an international businessman to fight communism abroad. <laughs> <laughs> well, ch change a few of the nouns in that thing to work today, maybe. But uh, that was a, uh, a great experience. And we came back to L.A. and L.A. was never the same for me. I didn't really... Even as a kid, I I never felt I was going to wind up there, and I haven't. We moved to New York, my wife and I, uh, in the uh, late '80s, I believe, early '90s. But so Dad got some breaks here and there, and then he became he did these you know features that were I think this schedules were eight days or something, and one of them was Rocket Man. With uh, George Foghorn Winslow, remember how he spoke, and Charles Coburn, I believe, and uh, Anne Francis, who was just uh, as a when I was probably ten by then. I don't know. Now, for, now for the for the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about here, Rocket Man was a feature film from 1954. George Foghorn Winslow. Uh, plays a little boy, of course, because what what else would he play these days? <laughs> and uh, he finds a, a, an alien ray gun where if you shoot it at somebody, they immediately tell the truth. So it's something we certainly could use today, especially on politicians. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I to this day, I remember it as being one of the films I saw when I was little. So tell us how uh, you remember it. Well. I had by that time, uh, my brother and I were in. Uh, he was older. Uh, we were in um, junior high, I guess. And um, my father asked, said, "Listen, um, why don't you and Bob come to the set, and we'll, we'll put you in the movie?" And I didn't have much interest in being around any of that. Uh, you know, I don't know why. Um, but I agreed, and he put me in the movie and then gave me a line. And the shooting of it, I mean, the actual set 
life experience. It was fun to be with my dad. By the way, uh, the scriptwriter, I think he rewrote the whole thing, was Lenny Bruce. Oh my Lenny God, Bruce, Lenny Bruce? Lenny Bruce, the groundbreaking comedian, satirist, and social activist, and profane comedian to some. Uh, and I remember meeting Lenny Bruce. He had um, a suit on that was kind of silver gray, and nobody wore suits, uh, although they still wore ties on the set in those days. And he had uh, these kind of high socks because he was sitting in a chair. I mean, they, you know, when his cuffs didn't cover them, and they were very shiny, and, and, and I'd never seen that before. Seemed like a nice man. And uh, anyway, dad put me in the movie. I had a line and I was supposed to run across the street and I tripped um, in the script. I did in, in my own life and ripped my pants, my best pants. And uh, then George Winslow shoots uh, this ray gun and it stops the speeding car that's about to hit me. And I didn't, you know, question anything, how they would do it or what was done. I, I kind of accepted by that point that movies were, even though they were, were technically put together and they were all fiction and they had nothing to do with so-called reality, they were my real life. I mean, I, I, they were my frames of reference. They were my, uh, I seemed to learn more from them than my actual education the people who, the actors who played the roles were always the roles they played to me. Um, and, and so I was uh, fully expecting um, just everyday occurrences. But the way they shot this, where I tripped and fell in the road and, and uh, the, the car speeding towards me and stopped suddenly, changed my whole life. Uh, I, they put me in the street and the stuntman gets in the car and then he backs up, he goes in reverse real fast, and in the movie they reverse the film. And this as a concept, just forget whether it was for a movie, but playing with time like that, and I mean, I learned later that that's what drugs were for, but at this time, <laughs> at a, as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old kid, I mean, it was astounding that anyone could come up with such a, a, an amazing uh, accomplishment to, that to play with time like this and it changed my life forever forever and uh, the movie came out and uh, it, it was uh, I think I was in your camp and that you know any movie starring young kids were you always thought it was you right and in fact the movie that altered my life in a, in in almost in a similar way uh, that uh, watching a, a stuntman get in a car and go backwards and then reverse the film. But the movie that actually changed my life, I, I don't remember if it was before that, it might have been a little bit, was the original Invaders from Mars. Because the story, as I learned later, and it was about the, a young boy, my, you know, so I identified, but uh, Menzies put the camera at his eye level at all times. And the story of that film was so uh, alien. And you did this series, a uh, book on the Twilight Zone, which was, of course, all of our favorite series at the time. But it was just conceptually uh, uh, something that changed me. 
changed my life, you know, where you, people you trust, suddenly you can't trust and then you wake up and it's all a dream, but it isn't really a dream because the spaceship lands at the end. I mean, I didn't know where to put any of this and yet I, I felt like I had more room in my brain than I, I assumed I did. Well, the word, so the, word it was, the, the word that comes to mind from that movie is nightmarish. And I think uh, I think any of us who were seeing movies in the 50s at a young age and who saw Invaders from Mars came out of that room of uh, that movie hall a little a little tripped out. And uh, it's funny you should mention that because uh, I had a guest last year, uh, one of my favorite guests, Jimmy Hunt, who played the little boy. Wow. And yeah, I'll give you the link to listen to the cast. It'll bring back some good memories. Uh, uh, I, I think we were all very impressionable in those days. And like you, I, 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 I feel like we're kindred spirits, Alan, because my life is all about movies. I, I, I live and breathe them without sounding like the big cliche. But I think uh, those movie experiences when I was little at the at the stadium, uh, were just so, so meaningful to me. I never thought I would work in the film business at all, as I'm sure, uh, well, you were certainly closer to it. What, what would you say was the spark that suddenly said, maybe I should make a living doing this? Well, it's very personal. Actually, as dad went on, he became very successful, uh, not financially, because even though the money was, I, I suppose at the time, rather, good it, you know by today's standards it's nothing but uh you know and dad uh, his whole motto if he if he had one and he didn't but if he did it would be when you're broke buy something much to the consternation of my mother but we were always uh you know living on the edge but the thing that changed uh, and and as he started to do more and more he was one of the originals originators of sitcoms. I mean, he did the early, the most early kind of sitcoms, Anne Southern, Robert Cummings, and all these other names that your listeners never heard of. Uh, and then he went on to do Brady Bunch and Batman and did, uh, you know, he was a very successful TV director, but as his, as he became successful in that field and I got older, I wasn't interested in any of it. I mean, it didn't connect with me and like with most movies at the time, they were about a part of, you know, the, the the fantasy of the real world that wasn't really fantasy to me. It was just sort of more uh, conservative, uh, you know, approach to uh, not, nobody got dirty. And but Dad took us to film noir all the time before the it was called film noir. And those like Invaders from Mars, but but in a different way. Those left the biggest impressions on me. But I wasn't interested in joining the movie business. I don't know why. I didn't know what I wanted. Uh, I, and when I went to UCLA, it was, I think, before film school was even part of it. I didn't know what I wanted. I, I, I learned how to play pool in the co-op with the Japanese engineering students. That was my greatest accomplishment. In college. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I started in, the, you know, uh, Kennedy's assassination just ruined life. I mean, suddenly the bubble was burst entirely. And all right, I got to uh, ask you. I got to ask you because I always ask people. It's kind of a standard question. Do you remember the day he died? Of course. And I was at UCLA, and word spread, and I just went home. 
I, I didn't. I mean, I was happy to not be in school, but uh, I was n- not happy again for a long time. Sure. It was, um, uh, you know, I guess we we not only worked together on a film, you and I, but uh, I think I'm older than you. But uh, a lot of these beats were your beats too. Yeah, we're but, pretty. We're not as far as way. You 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 have eight years on me, but I think uh, a lot of the beats were there. I. I was also a UCLA student. I was at UCLA during Watergate, and uh, mm. as a as a writer for the Daily Bruin, I used to sure. remember we would get the AP Wire uh, stories. Uh, the 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 major ones they would give a little beep beep tone, and we'd see all the stories of Watergate first on the AP machine, which is interesting. So yeah. uh, you 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 I you know just like you, I I, I had no idea what did I wanted to do after school after university, although I had done a lot of writing which was good for me so what what started moving you in the direction because I think your first gigs I think weren't you an assistant director well <laughs> I hope you have some time or you just tell me to shut up if it's not interesting to you we but got all uh, the time in the world uh, I you know I haven't actually spoken about any of this so it's uh it's kind of interesting to me t- in some ways uh my brother who was my hero he was uh, a little less than two years older than me, totally different than me. And uh, but my roommate, uh, all through through growing up, and uh, somebody I, I would look up to. He was quiet and different, looked different than me. He was kind of big and strong and and all of that. <clears throat> all he wanted to do was fly. And uh, he he was less realistic than I think even me or my father was because he just won he wanted to buy a biplane and barnstorm, now, <laughs> you, you know. Uh, and this would have been in the early '60s. There wasn't any. You didn't buy a biplane and barnstorm. There wasn't a job. <laughs> but that that was really. And then he started studying airplanes and and he decided to uh, join the Navy as a, and try and get in as a Navy pilot. This was before the war and he did. And uh, uh, he, he was like uh, those guys in the ride stuff, you know, he was in Pensacola and they'd buy the fastest car Corvette and they'd, he was all of that. And he was stationed, in, he was an aircraft carrier pilot, but he wanted to do photo reconnaissance, uh, which gives you the fastest planes, but no guns. He didn't want to shoot guns. And and he would he was stationed in, in San Diego, Coronado, and we lived, you know, in L.A. So he'd call me up and he'd say, uh, totally illegal, you know, against every rule of law and Navy law. He said, I'm going to fly over the house. I'll be there in about 20 minutes. Suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> about 20 minutes later, you hear a screaming jet over our neighborhood, you know, and he'd peel off. But he uh, then got sent to Southeast Asia and he started writing me back saying he wanted to, he was going to be a Navy careerist. And he started writing, he said, they're going to trump up a war here, pardon the word. And, um, he was not uh, supportive of it, but he was, uh, that was his duty. So he went, he bought 
a Super 8 camera in Hong Kong and would start recording a lot of his missions. Uh, he was flying uh, jets and you know, you'd see a MiG pull right into view and the, the, the Russian pilot would give him some obscene gesture and you'd see Bob, my brother's fingers in the foreground go up. And uh, he came home one day once the war had started and we thought, well, he'll never go back there. He served his time. And he brought me a um, Super 8 camera, which they didn't have in America, Minolta. And you'd buy the film in a kind of a cartridge at a drugstore and then send it back, a little reel-to-reel stuff. And he bought me a motorcycle, a Honda, which they didn't have in America. This would have been 64 or five. And I was getting out of school at that time and film school had just started so I would, uh, that, that changed my life. I mean, I would just live with this camera. I wasn't as um, polished as uh, Spielberg's movie, but it was pretty much the same moves. I mean, I would sit there and that, that started to be everything I'd think about was uh, I couldn't wait to, to get a, you know, a day off from school or I, I'd just take it off and go out and shoot things. And I, out of UCLA, there was somebody introduced me to some film students who were really in the film program to meet girls and they didn't care about film at all. And so I would make them pay me with new, new super eight film. And I'd go out and shoot little documentaries and films for them, give it to them. They'd take credit and I got more film. And I used to think to myself, um, another reference to an early important, uh, TV series, I would say have, uh, you know, have film will travel because I have my <laughs> motorcycle and my, uh, my Super 8 camera. And I, uh, you know, this, this is before sound came in, but I would get, I'd start doing them to, to music and you'd press the projector, you'd edit all the night long and you'd press the projector and press the, the tape player, which was a real to real music tape player. And watch the movie until it went out of sync and drift out of sync, but <laughs> I'd get the idea. And I was just totally hooked then. And then the greatest uh, irony, which my life seems to be filled with paradox and irony. Uh, so the movie industry was, you know, rife with nepotism. And usually it would be the dumb son of some famous person would get a the assistant director jobs and and the assistant director ranks uh, had a lot of not very good people in it and because they were really people who got in because of who they knew. So my father obviously was somebody to know. And when I got really hooked by it, I remember once a dad and mom and I was sitting at the table and dad said, what do you want to do? I was probably about 13, 14 I said, I don't know, I don't know, you know, and I'd say, uh, maybe write something, maybe I'd like, he said, well, that's good, you, you think about that a lot, and I did, I, and I, like you, I probably started writing, uh, just writing, and anyway, um, when I finally thought, you know, I'd like to make little movies, of course, there was no outlet for it then, nothing, but I, you know, a kid with a dream, as they say, so, I said to dad, I'd like to get in the movie business. So 
He said, well, you're late. I could have gotten you in as an assistant director, but now they won't do that. You go through, there's a new training program that had just started when it was a year old. And it was a director's guild and producer's guild. And they took people from all over the country. They take, they have applicants. It's still going on. I, I think it's produced some really good people. But they take 10 a year then, and they'd get maybe 10,000 applicants. So what they did, it was all done to prove that it's on the up and up. And you, you did it with an ID number. And you took, you'd take um, an SAT test, basically. You had to have a college degree. So that was the only good thing I got out of college. And uh, then you take an SAT test, and they take uh, anonymously take the top scores and then they'd filter you down and uh, pick you so fortunately I did well and uh, it took me a couple two cracks I think and I got in the third year and it was a time when the movie industry was uh, the studio system was dead or dying and there wasn't a lot of work but because I was, I did well on the SAT, I, I was picked near the top of the class and the top scores got the early work. So I got out of the program. Uh, the minimum time was uh, 18 months and some people had to stay for a couple years or more because there wasn't enough work to get them to be trainees on. But I got out and I became a second assistant and I did a few movies and then do you, do you, uh, Alan, do you remember the first movie you worked on? As a trainee? Um, uh -huh. I, I don't know if this was the first one, but uh, I did two movies in prisons, maximum security prisons. So those I will never forget. And uh, the first assistant director was a great, he actually was a friend of my father's. His name was Danny McCauley. And the second assistant who I became very good friends with was Michael Daves, whose father was Delmer Daves, and a uh, uh, brilliant kid. Michael was strange, but brilliant. And we did a movie. Uh, I didn't know them, but I would, you know, they just, as jobs came up, the guild would place you and it was called Riot. And it was in Florence, Arizona in maximum security prison. It was in 68 because we were there when Robert Kennedy was shot. And then the same team, they asked me to do their next film, which was in a, a prison in, in Alabama, in Kilby, Alabama, I believe it's called Kilby Prison. Both, they were crazy prison. I mean, it cha that changed my life for sure because my biggest fear was ever, as soon as I learned what a prison was before I had this job, I never wanted to be in prison. I mean, I would think of ways that, uh, how to kill myself if I ever got uh, arrested and had to go to prison. And here the first, it may not have been the first job, but it was the most indelible one um, was in the prison. And uh, we, we need a whole podcast for those stories. But gradually I became, I became a second assistant. And, and uh, then I wanted to work with my dad because I just wanted to. So uh, I got started at Paramount and TV and they wouldn't let me go. I did all these movies of the week working with some really good directors, Joe Sargent, Joseph Sargent, who was a 
great director for television. I did a lot with him. And Sean Penn's father, Leo Penn, was a really good director. And uh, I knew I wasn't going to be an AD for long. I became a first AD at really young because I must say I was very good. And I really learned how to make, how the, how the professionally make movies, you know, well, you're you're working you're working on the front lines every day. You're you're right there, and yeah. I think the key to effective filmmaking is the proper use of time, where you don't waste it. It sounds like, as a as a future director, you learned some terrific lessons. I did, and it wasn't. It was never from the work. The work was kind of crappy because most of it was television, and the few features I did. Uh, we're kind of dumb, but the working with that, just watching it happen. One of the most, uh, again, indelible things, uh, I was working at Warner Brothers on a movie as a second. Um, a great bank robbery with Zero Mostel. And Howard Kazanjian, who went on to produce Star Wars, who was a graduate, I think, of the first director's guild class, Brainy class, uh, was the second. And uh, the, there was somebody who got a second assistant uh, a trainee or somebody got, uh, no, a second assistant, I believe it was, got sick on a set on a soundstage. And Howard says, listen, they can't find anybody. You have to go over there. You'll just, uh, here's the name of the first assistant. Go over there and and uh, you'll work for a day or two. And uh, we we won't need you here until you come back because we're in a, small set with a few actors. So I go over to soundstage, whatever. And it was uh, the arrangement directed by Elia Kazan and with uh, Faye Dunaway and Kirk Douglas. And I, of course, was uh, well-versed in, in Kazan and Kirk Douglas. And Kazan was a, you know, a film-making hero to me. And my taste by that time, I was probably 21, 22, was decidedly offbeat. And I appreciated really well done, you know, European films or the few American movies that would break through. But I didn't have much of an appetite for real popular stupid movies. I just never felt that. That's why, I did, you know, it's ironic I was working in television on some of the dumbest shows, but it, it, I was good at the work and it paid and I could go home and write at night. But I went to the, to the arrangement for this one day and there was a scene when I was walking in, they were rehearsing it and I was thrilled to death. I mean, I just couldn't believe there's Kirk Douglas sitting, you know, through the, on the other side of the lens in Kazan and everybody was very quiet and uh, nobody, uh, what, there wasn't, nobody laughed. <laughs> which uh, was, there's always a laughter on a set is a good thing. And I watched them do this scene. I, I, I think they were sitting in a couch or something, a dialogue scene. And Kazan did like 70 takes. And it was the whole day. And I left, that was my last day on that scene, that set. And You're I, saying 77 zero? Seven zero. I mean, that may be exaggerated, but it was over fifty, I believe. Wow. It was a long dialogue scene, and it was a you know a shot, maybe a two shot or something like that. And I, I never saw the film, so I have no idea what how it was used. But it was just nuance. Every take, it would be 
okay, maybe with age I'm exaggerating, but believe me, it was not a four take shot. It was it was in multiple numbers, and I was so depressed because I couldn't tell the difference. I couldn't. Now there could have been palpable difference between each take and I probably wouldn't have noticed, but I was pretty keen at the time to the first thing I plugged into on any set was the actors and how they worked and, and uh, to make sure the director's job was easier if I could help it. And I left that set and Howard Kazanjian said, how was it? And I said, I'll never make it. He said, why? I said, I, they did, you know, like dozens of takes and I never saw anything different after about 10 and he said get used to it you know and uh, it stayed with me obviously I'm still talking about it because I realized it was me obviously uh, probably an eccentric uh, excessive amount of takes but still there was something I didn't get and and I could have all the dreams I wanted about, oh, I was going to make movies, even though I didn't know what to make or how or where. But I knew until I could tell the difference between one take and the next, uh, it was all useless. And I uh, just, you talk about UCLA. When I went there, I just didn't meet a lot of people. I was in the wrong program. I just wanted to get out. And... The most fun or the the most uh, mind expanding thing was I would go. Remember, Mom's, a beer joint in UCLA it was. And I'd go there after school every day, and I'd read the L.A. Free Press, which was you know the <laughs> left wing. Oh and, yeah, uh, I, I used to and love. The, I used to love the astrology section. It was a little bit offbeat. <laughs> well, I'd read it. I'd read it for the political inside scoop and sure and uh, I I got indoctrinated and, and that combined with my brother who life tragically ended in Vietnam when they sent him back uh, to replace uh, his best friend who was who was getting married so Bob volunteered to go back and got shot down and that was the break of a lot of reality and, and happiness in our family and stay with me forever uh, and change my attitude. And I, in so many ways about not just the reality can, can really hurt, but fiction can heal. Right. And I just bathed myself in, in an unreality and uh, took it from there. And I wanted to make a movie in there. You know, now I was tired of being an assistant director. I, I was getting offers all the time. The money was real good. And I, I turned them down. I turned everything down. And I wanted to learn to write. And so Joyce and I were staying in this little rental house up on Woodrow Wilson in, in, near Mohon. And it was, it had, uh, it was so small, but it, I had a uh, you know a clothes dresser Joyce had, and I put my typewriter on top of it, and I'd start writing scripts standing up because there wasn't room to sit down, <laughs> and I would just write them. And to me, as fast as I could write them, I'd take them to a newfangled thing called uh, the Xerox store or something, whatever it was called at the time. Sure. And for three bucks, you could publish a movie, you know, and printed. And if something was printed on 
white page, you know, uh, it seemed official. And I'd write these things and I'd teach myself to write, to dialogue and, and I'd read them and I'd throw them away and I'd write another one. Did you, did you have access to some feature screenplays to look at the format? Well, I sure I'd worked on them for by that time I'd been working on them for you know. So you had the scripts. I knew what scripts, but I didn't need the reference, and I also didn't like the way they were written. I never I, from the beginning. I I didn't want to write shots. I I think that was a fallacy because you never knew. You know, the whole key to me with filmmaking was the spontaneity of coming on the set and seeing what the dynamics of, of everything were. And the only times I ever planned a shot in any of the movies I made, we never got to shoot them that way because there was always a glitch here or we, the equipment didn't arrive or there was no time. So I'd come every day when I was a director and just start from zero. And that, I loved it. Uh, but I didn't like the way screenplays were written. Um, when you somehow read a good one, it wasn't about uh, the way it was written. It was the quality of the writing. And the quality of the writing for me was always when it was closer to a novel and left a lot unexplained. That's Those are the kind I like. So I'd never mention the word camera in any screenplay I've ever written. And um, uh, I just would do that at night. I would uh, put on music, get stoned, and start writing. And so I, let, let, me, let, know, me jump, let me jump in real quickly because I'm also a writer and I'm also knee deep in it now. Uh, what was a good page count per day for you? How many pages do you think you could crank out in a typical session? Oh, I thought the whole joke was the, you had to go as fast as you could. So I would write a screenplay a week. Wow. Some, and I found that I, the, my strength was dialogue. I uh -huh. don't know why, but it was. My weakness was stories, which uh, I never overcame that weakness. And I never cared about, I never started with a concept, oh, what's making money? I mean, I went through that a little bit like, well, if I could write a horror movie or if I could write a cop movie, maybe somebody... But at the time, there was nowhere to make uh, films for, for young people. I mean, it was, it was either Roger Corman or cheap horror movies, and that was it. And, and the studios controlled everything, or, you know, you had to have some kind of name or cachet. But I would write, and <laughs> it, was the, it, it was a combination of, of phobias or, or quirks or whatever you want to call it. There was nothing more technically beautiful than black type on a white page to me. And I, you know, this was before, way before computers, but this was even before word processors or, or anything. So it was all, and I never learned how to type. I type with two fingers, but I, I never wanted to learn how to type because when I was searching for the next letter, I'd get an idea, you know, and I like the synapse time, but once I started, I would write until I made a, mis uh, a typo. I'd read, read each page, and if it had a typo on it, if I caught it, I'd rewrite that page before I'd go on to the next. Really? I never, <laughs> I never took notes or never. I, I never had outlines on any script I've ever written. I just so basically, when you when you started to look at that blank page on a new script, you had no idea where the story would go. 
No, I still don't. And well, it's, most it, yeah, it's funny you should say that because I've listened to all the the screenwriting teachers and all of the 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 dialogue, et cetera, on how to write a good script. And I I write with a comedy writing partner, and we we have a basic idea where the story goes. But in my personal experience, when you're writing without it, without exactly knowing where you're going, you get these amazing ideas spontaneously. Absolutely, because I used to say about screenplays, any screenplay, it was uh, uh, not, not just mine. It was the last best idea, but it's not the next one. And I didn't want to know how these things ended. I mean, maybe, you know, you, you throw a, a, a javelin into the sand and you're headed for that direction. But outside, of, I didn't want to know. I just want I, I let the, the, the day's previous writing influence the, the next thing I wrote. And I thought that was the most uh, liberating thing I could do. And I could tell my tastes and judgments and talents were not commercial at all. I never got the commercial gene or popular DNA. And so I, I just felt like, well, whatever I do, I'll do. And maybe I'll find a way to find a niche, even though they didn't exist. And I would start writing and I learned enough about my weaknesses and strengths and the process and typing that I could fake my way through a script. And I sold a script, my first script to a producer who had, I can't remember his name, but he'd produced some stuff and he was always, later I found out his way of, you know, you'd walk into his office, some little cluttered office on Hollywood Boulevard, but he had mounds and mounds of scripts. And I thought, Jesus, you know, why doesn't he do one of those? And what he did was he would, uh, you know, he, anybody who wanted to write and got to him, he'd say, yeah, let's uh, write something. And he was kind of good with general ideas for stories. And and he would just prey upon young people, but it was uh, mutually beneficial. So I think when I finished it, it was... Uh, it was a rewrite, I believe, for some script he had bought about a cowboy in Chicago. And uh, I just just sat down and wrote it and he paid me, I think it was three or four hundred dollars. And and he had a script and and I remember bringing it into his office a, a week later after I started. And he said, uh, what's I, I finished. He said, how could you finish? You can't finish in a week. It's gonna, it can't possibly be any good if you finished it in a week. He said, are you a fast typer? I said, no. But I, I said, I work 24 hours a day. <laughs> and I said, read it. And if, if you don't like it, then, uh, you know, tell me. And he kind of liked it. And he had some pretty good ideas for it. And I rewrote it. And he never got it made. And uh, But I felt pretty good. And I took that $500 and bought some more Super 8 film and went, only I wanted to graduate to 16. And when I was a, you better ask me questions or I'll just blab my way through this whole well, thing. Well, I actually, uh, one of the key questions for your career is meeting Robert Altman. How did that happen? Well, it's a good one to ask because it was right around this time. I was a first AD, which is, for those who don't know, it's he's the basically runs the set. Uh, he doesn't run the production, but he's a he's the 
a main feed into the production. But he runs the set. And there were all kinds of different techniques used by the older guys. You know, they bark and and uh, first ads, and they would, you know, do it by the numbers. Uh, uh, the younger guys who were coming in through the training program um, were m- more nuanced and uh, and a little more open. Uh, I was really good because all I wanted to do was help the director. And, and I knew so much about how movies were made. I'd, I'd love these stories. You know, you'd work on some stupid television show, but the guys who worked on it, you know, somebody says, yeah, I worked on Citizen Kane, you know, and suddenly you'd, you'd hear all about movie business. And um, I had gotten to a first assistant, which is a profession in its own. I mean, it's a very honorable and well-paying profession. And it's, you know, it's something kind of great about being the top dog on a production level. But there was no reward, no creative reward for me. And uh, I had a lot of offers and I just started turning them all down. And for better, uh, for reasons unknown to me, but I had a really good reputation. People liked to work with me. I'd kept the sets loose. I was always ahead of the next step. I let people know there were no politics or secrets and and directors in television would ask for me again and again, and and I enjoyed all that part of it. I enjoyed the the magic of a set still, and the uh, accomplishment. But I just it was uh, it was just like punching in and punching out, and so I quit as an assistant director. Basically, at the top of my game, I was under thirty and and uh, in demand, and I but the movies were weren't there and that I would want to work on even. And, and I don't know, I thought I could just, and it was, you know, the war and everything happened. It was around 68, 69. So it was turbulence uh, magnified. And um, I got a call one day from a production coordinator who I'd worked with several times, a woman, and uh, she had said, um, I'd like you to come in for an interview for a show, a movie that's going. I said, uh, and she said, but I, I have to tell you, it's for uh, the, the position's a second assistant. I said, I think her name was Kelly Marshall. I said, Kelly, I hadn't been a second assistant for couple years and I don't certainly don't want to go back to that. She said, well, the director, I think you might be interested in. And uh, his name is Robert Altman. And I, for uh, whatever reason, this was now this was around 1971. And for whatever reason, I hadn't seen MASH. I don't know why. And I'd seen his name. I thought it was some young Canadian guy. <laughs> and because uh, he had done a, uh, that cold day in the park in Canada and uh, I said you know she said he's really interesting I think you, 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 knowing you a little bit you might really like him and I said I don't want to be a second assistant she said well with him it's things are different so my mother's maiden name no relation is Altman but that was the only reason I said I'd go meet him. <laughs> just, just 
because I thought it was uh, somebody was trying to tell me something. <laughs> so I went and met him. Uh, that that first day of meeting Bob and in his office, Tommy Thompson was his assistant director, producer, and uh, he, he, you know, I was used to working in the studios and, and the studio system and television, and. They had an office in Westwood in a, in a house, in an office building kind of tutor on Westwood Boulevard, which was already something I, I was in love with because you didn't have to go through a studio and all of that and everybody afraid to speak their minds. So I go in, I couldn't find the entrance. I go, there was a leather shop in, on the street, uh, a sandal maker, and then the rest of it was kind of all in a courtyard. And I went around that, and uh, it turned out that Bob was trying to get that guy to move every, every day that he rented space there. He had everything else he, he had rented up, but he could The guy wouldn't move from that shop. I don't think he ever did. Anyway, uh, I found a door. There was a courtyard, and I found a door, and I walk in. And there's this tall guy with a beard, and he uh, looked a little like um, Terry Thomas, the British actor. <laughs> really? And, and and he sits down, and I had long hair and a beard, and I and I had had an offer earlier that week to go to a big Fox movie to go to Europe as as, and I wanted to go to Europe, as Spain, I believe it was as a first AD on a big international movie, but I wouldn't cut my hair. So they say, if you can't, won't cut your hair, we can't offer you this job. And I said, well, I won't. And um, I was real practical, Steve, at the time. <laughs> and uh, so I walk in and I meet this guy and he's got a beard and not long hair. And and he's, he's very charming and funny. And uh, I said, um, I told him on the phone, he had called me, uh, uh, he didn't. The office called me and to to verify it, and I said, "Well, I think I should say something. I have long hair, and I won't cut it because I just lost the job for not cutting my hair." And uh, the, the person who was on the other end said, "I don't think that'll be an issue here." So when I came in, I meet this guy, and he sits down. We talk about general things, and he plays himself as Bob Altman, Robert Altman. But he, I can't remember if he ever said I'm Robert Altman, but I thought he was, and he knew I thought he was. And then when it's over, he smiles. He says, now let's go meet Bob. And it was Tommy, <laughs> it's Tommy Thompson. And so I go into the inner office where this guy you'd never forget was sitting there, uh, a, a larger man, uh, uh, but piercing blue eyes, and I mean, uh, you know what Altman looks like, and and I mean, he, he looked like a king at this huge desk, and he was playing solitaire with tarot cards. And uh, I don't know if it was a game he invented. He, as long as I knew him, he would do it, but or if it was a version of tarot card play. But he was playing. He doesn't look. Uh, and Tommy says, uh, "Bob, I want you to meet Alan Rudolph." Uh, He's going to be uh, our assistant director if, if if you can convince him. And Altman doesn't look up. He's playing. He, he doesn't look up at me at all. And he just says, cut your hair. 
<laughs> and I go, what, what? and then he looks up and smiles, and and he says, um, you know, he says, yeah, we're making a movie, uh, Philip Marlowe, you know, long goodbye, and I, I'd read all the Marlowe books. My father was um, uh, a, a big devotee, and he knew Chandler, my father. So, uh, you know, I was very well-versed, in, and I said, um, well, I mean, I fell in love with everything around it because it was like walking. Everything was advanced and smart and people walking around. They all look like hippies. And and I was just uh, I was thrilled with the atmosphere. But I said, I just don't want to be a, an assistant director. I want to try and make my own films. And then he gives me that X-ray vision look, Altman. You know, he looks right through you. And he, he says, listen. First of all, labels don't mean anything here. He says, I tell you what, it was Friday afternoon. And he says, I tell you what, I got my new movies opening up tonight in Hollywood at uh, the, Ch I think it was the Chinese. And he said, go see it and come talk to us Monday morning and make your decision. Then. Because you, you got the impression no one said no to Altman, ever. And I had just said no. <laughs> and so I went to see his movie. And it was McCabe, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Well, if I'd never met him, that movie would have changed my life more than almost anything I'd ever seen. I mean, it was just everything about it, including the weather. And I just wanted to get out of L.A. and live in real weather. So that was played in. I used to drive up to Seattle as soon as I got my driver's license. And now I live in the Seattle area. I have for 30 years. And... He said, go see that movie and come back. I saw it like four or five times that weekend. Wow. I just I just thought it was. So I was supposed to be at Altman's office at, you know, 10 o'clock or something. I was there parked across the street at nine in the morning. I couldn't wait. I saw people going in and it was about 930. I went over there and then Tommy and Bob arrived and I said, uh, whatever you want. And Tommy started talking about how much money and, you know, I said, I don't care, whatever you pay me. I don't care if I'm a second. I said, just, this is where I want to be. And um, the rest is my history. <laughs> I don't well, think you know, anybody else. Alan, uh, you have given us a concise uh, Alan Rudolph 101 on your formative. In the, the stuff about your dad is priceless. And I think that the listeners who know your filmography want to know more about your individual films. But what I'd like to do is do that on another day if you're up for it, because um, uh, I, I think that... Um, you, you, there's so many facets. I mean, you've, you've made some very, very interesting movies over the years. In fact, I one last question I've got to ask you real quickly, even though it, it takes things out of order. When you came to do Endangered Species, which is, you know, it's kind of a, a studio thriller, it, it doesn't quite fit in the jigsaw of your filmography. It's it's a little bit of an odd fit. And I was curious, how what motivated you to make that movie? Because I'm I'm curious. Well, you worked on it, and we were all endangered species on that film. Um, okay, I'll, I'm sorry. To me, it, it's a it's a great little thriller, and wow. uh, 
It's it's just uh, it's just uh, an interesting. I mean, if I was ca casting a director for an, an action thriller like that, I wouldn't necessarily choose you as my first choice. So I think it's because your films are are a lot more artistic and stylish, and this seemed like a straight ahead good studio thriller. I'm just curious how that came to you. Well, I Almond produced my first two films. Welcome to L.A. and which I uh, which which came off of Nashville, and I'd he wanted me to write Buffalo Bill and and other things for him, and then he's and I, he says I know you want to direct, uh, we'll get that, but you gotta stick with me for a couple years first. And we made Welcome to L.A. as sort of a caboose on Buffalo Bill, and uh, was done for the real discussion should be what what we changed in the movie making industry in those early years, but I won't get into that. And I want to do it uh, to show all, all of Altman's influence on me. I wasn't going to hide from it. But the second film I made with Bob, where he basically just said, find something up for and make, write it and, and uh, see if the least amount you can make it and we'll see if we can get it made. And I wrote Remember My Name, which is uh, kind of a noir-ish uh, th thriller. Not a thriller. That's wrong. I hate that title. Um, it, it was a psychological uh, story, and it was. The, but it was for me as a director and writer. It was. It was eons ahead of Welcome to L.A. And I was so proud of it. And Geraldine Chaplin, Tony Perkins, and um, it, it. Nobody wanted it. It was a. Uh, it, I thought it was the best film I'd made for years and years after that, and I still consider one of the best I've done. And but it was just uh, too different for everybody at the time, and nobody wanted it. And it was a complete. Uh, it it got released ultimately, Mike Kaplan's little Lagoon uh, releasing company. But he would do one city a year for about five years, and then that was the end. It's not on. It never went to video. It's not on DVD. It's never plays on television. I think. Turner Classic played it once, and it's one of those films that uh, you know Altman once said, "You you know what a cult is, don't you? It's uh, less than a minority, not enough people for minority." And <laughs> I mean, it was a true cult film, but I thought it was really light years ahead of Welcome in terms of of, of technique and, uh, and ability. But it was such a complete failure that I was. Uh, you know, Welcome wasn't the big success, but it made noise. But I was kind of uh, non grata. And Carolyn Pfeiffer, I had met through Altman, and she was, I'd written something real fast for her for a television show. And and then she said that they were going to get into, her, her uh, partner and her were getting into movie production. And she had a two-picture deal at uh, MGM or United Artists, and one was Roadie, which is another movie I wouldn't, you would never put me with. And the second one was Endangered Species. And I was flat broke; nobody wanted me, so I thought, well, okay. By the time we got around to Endangered Species, uh, UA and, and MGM were one unit then. Uh, UA, where we made Roadie had gone broke because of Heaven's Gate and David Beagleman, notorious David Beagleman, an executive throughout Hollywood agent, whatnot, 
uh, had taken over MGM. And um, then we made that movie under terrible conditions. The, the writer's strike hit and it cost us a year and they wouldn't let me cast people I wanted to cast. The cast was nice and wonderful people, good actors, but I, uh, they had a guy, Robert Urich, under contract and I liked him, but I want, I'd written it or co-guided the screenplay for Lee Marvin or Robert Mitchum, you know, a guy who was really over the hill and all. And uh, they didn't, wouldn't allow that. And then we started shooting and I wanted to make it a kind of realistic looking and they shut us down after a week and he fired the cameraman and said, I want this to be a romance and bright lighting. And I said, I quit and, and I couldn't quit because my, apparently my contract said I could never quit. I could only be fired. So we went through it and we still try. I did the best I could, um, came up with, uh, I mean, I, I think the stuff was there and we had cut it and had a big paranoid ending that was, I thought, quite good. And um, then they they fired Beagleman during all this and they hired some other guy, uh, Freddie Fields, who was just like Beagleman. And he recut the ending and demanded these things be cut in there. And by the time we were spit out the other end, I said to Carolyn, if you and I are ever going to work together again, uh, it won't be for a studio. And I said, we, we've got to find some independent money. You know, I want to get what's interesting about film distribution is that when you get a movie green lit at a studio with a lot of enthusiasm and then the executives change, it's almost like, uh, your your patrons have disappeared and there's nobody to speak for you and your movie just gets dumped and oh yeah no i i only made i made a few studio movies and they were only for uh, companies that were just starting up or just going out of business i never, yeah. <laughs> i had never had a studio movie where you actually and today it's all different you know uh, but someday we'll get into that we'll get into anyway that. i mean Three, three, three years later, after I had done Endangered Species, done all your publicity, I get assigned to a film that the Sundance Institute's their first movie. It's called Desert Bloom. I don't know if you uh, know. Carolyn, you, I, you know that Carolyn movie, involved right? with? Uh, no, it was uh, was it Carolyn? Yeah, yeah. I think she was involved. Yeah, um, um, but it was Eugene Kaur, and same thing happened. They change of the studio, executives out, and the movie got virtually dumped. I don't think it's ever been on DVD. I don't know if Endangered Species has ever been on DVD. No, I uh, may have been, but none of my films. I mean, I mean, they're on some are on DVD. I don't think they're ever streaming. Somebody just sent me something uh, last week, and some from some magazine of two uh, they're listing the like 15 really good movies that don't stream and i had two choose me and the moderns you know but if we ever speak again uh the altman years and what you know i know i'm not a household name i doubt if anybody under 50 listening to this has ever heard of me or seen my films but it, when you talk about the past um, movie making, you have to uh, you really have to understand the period that it was and the time that it was. And working with Altman in those early years, I mean, Bob had a way of doing things that he was born with. But the movie business had a way of doing things that they were 
committed to, and no one would break that cycle. And it took Altman to break the cycle, and it took Welcome to L.A. and Remember My Name to show how to do it on a low-budget level and still maintain quality. And then when when Carolyn and I regrouped and did uh, Island Alive, we had a couple years where we did Choose Me and Trouble in Mind and the Moderns, and I'd always go off and do anything I could, anybody would offer me to pay the rent because those movies, none of those little movies ever paid anything. I'd always put my money back. Well, you know, I was just going to say, Alan, I think that uh, not only do I want you to come back, I think it's intrinsic that we tell the rest of the story because uh, I think that your, your style and your ability to get these movies made is, is a great testament. I mean, these days, and I won't get into this now, but trying to go out and raise money in a movie business where there's really no home video backup, at least at least when you were doing, at least later, there would be somebody would want to buy the home video, right? So they're at least, you know, could handle some of your budget. And now uh, nobody knows what movies are, uh, the value of movies in the streaming world because there are no charts. I, I kind of grew up reading the trade papers every day. Uh, and this, you know, the kind of small town mentality of knowing everything about everybody. And there were charts every week that told you exactly what movies were making. Well, that's all disappeared, as you know. So it's it's crazy. But uh, we I have, have, yeah, we, we I have, have no I have no problem with uh, box office equating quality uh, because that, you know, the world changed with Jaws in terms of movies. And uh, suddenly a movie wasn't any good unless it made money and, and we never got out of there. Well, I'm going to change my name to Netflix and maybe I'll get a job. <laughs> well, we I'm have... not looking for a job. I, I never took a job. I did a lot of work. I took a few jobs to some studio like Endangered Species and, and I realized why I wasn't interested in that, in that part of it. I, I'm, I'm happy, not happy, but I, I did the movie. I, there's some good work in it. I think the film could have been better. I think if they'd supported it, it would have. We opened on the day E.T. opened, so, you know, it didn't have much of a chance. Not much of a chance. So we, we, have, been, we have been listening to Alan Rudolph talk a lot about his his origins and that of his dad. And I think it's been a fascinating talk, Alan. Uh, I'm glad you opened up because you are part of film history and your stories are great. And I want to hear more of them. I'd like to have you come back if you're up for it. Uh, well, I want to find out how it turns out. So I guess I am. <laughs> good, good. Well, everyone, this is Saturday Night at the Movies. Uh, I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Uh, we've had a delightful time with Alan. And uh, thank you again, Alan. And we will be talking soon. Okay, thanks, Steve. Good luck. Thank you.